This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Just after noon on October 23, 2004, a homeless man named Robert Aim was on his way back from a beer run when he decided to cut through the Arizona desert. At some point during the trip, he came across a random pile of garbage and decided to take a break there. He sat down on a discarded mattress, intending to have a beer and rest his legs before continuing the journey back to the construction site he'd been sleeping in. As he idly scanned his surroundings, however, something caught his eye. A big, heavy-looking storage tub was sitting nearby, covered with a carpet. Hoping to find something he could sell or recycle for a little extra cash, Robert uncovered the tub and looked around for something he could use to cut the tape that held the lid closed. He found a shard of glass from a broken bottle nearby and got to work. Inside, there were layers of black bags and plastic sheeting. He began ripping into them, but was soon overcome by the unbearable stench that rushed out. Caught off guard by the unmistakable reek of death, the cigarette he was smoking fell to the desert sand. At first glance, it looked like the container was filled with some kind of rancid stew. Then, he saw a belly button. Several hours after he ran to call the police, Robert Aim was interviewed by lead detective David Barnes. The man was still clearly shaken by what he had seen, and his genuine distress ruled him out as a suspect almost immediately. After taking down his statement, Barnes sent him on his way and refocused his attention on the blue Rubbermaid bin. The first unpleasant order of business would be to get a look for himself, and it was every bit as unpleasant as you could imagine. The smell of death was thicker than smoke, and it felt like it could suffocate just as easily. He approached the tub slowly, stealing his nerves, and held his breath as he pulled up the lid to examine what was inside. The huge container held a body of a man, and given the smell, he'd probably been dead for a while. The body, or what remained of it, was swimming in a festering sludge of decomposition fluids. It looked like all that was left of him was his torso, which was covered with crumpled black trash bags and sheets of clear plastic. The victim, who looked to be a heavy-set white male in his 40s, had been hacked above the navel and below the knees, leaving his body headless and with no limbs. His internal organs were missing. Without any means of identifying the man, however, the investigators were sure they'd have their work cut out for them. They spread out across the desolate wasteland and began to look for clues. There were tire tracks nearby, but they were hard to see and had worn down too much to identify anything about the vehicle that had dumped the bodies. They discovered a small scattering of rocks, earth, and plant matter which had likely been kicked up as the car drove away, but that wasn't really a whole lot to go on. There were also a couple of pieces of crumpled plastic sheeting found in the brush a few hundred feet from the corpse. But aside from that, most of the evidence would be collected from the body's immediate vicinity. Later on, as Detective Barnes was examining the evidence that had been gathered back at the station, he ran into a colleague named Detective Tommy Kalesa. 
Most recently, Kalesa was assisting on a case involving the disappearance of 45-year-old Jay Orban. His wife, Marjorie, claimed that he never came home from a business trip, but oddly enough, she didn't really seem all that upset about it. In fact, since she reported her husband missing, Marjorie had spent tens of thousands of dollars on a grand piano, various gadgets and devices, fancy furniture, and a wardrobe worthy of a princess. Furthermore, Marjorie's fling with a man named Larry Weisberg gave the police additional reason to be suspicious of her, and they became even more suspicious when they learned that while Jay was away on business trips, his wife had been secretly allowing her new love interest to live in their house. Kulesa asked for information about Barnes's victim, and Barnes admitted that they didn't have much aside from the general description of a white male in his 40s. But since the subject of Kalesa's missing persons case was a white male in his 40s, it was possible that they already had much more than they thought. According to Kalesa, while Barnes was trying not to throw up in the Arizona sun earlier that day, another group of investigators had recovered Jay Orban's vehicle, which had also been reported missing. Interestingly, it just so happened to be abandoned a few miles from the place where the body was found. But most interesting of all was the fact that a set of car keys had been found in the pocket of Barnes's dismembered victim. If the keys matched Jay Orban's Ford Bronco, they'd have a pretty good idea of who their victim was, and they'd have a solid lead. If the keys matched, that is. But would they? Thankfully, the Bronco was already in the impound lot, and getting to it was only a matter of walking downstairs. The detectives headed to the basement where the car was being kept. Barnes took out the keys and after making sure they weren't still gunked up with blood and rotting flesh, he attempted to put them in the door, and to his shock, the Bronco opened immediately. Just to be sure, Barnes tested the key in the ignition and the engine came to life. After a DNA test, Detective Calusa's missing person was confirmed to be a murder victim, and the victim's wife was confirmed to be a suspect. This is Monsters. Jay Orban was just your average man from the suburbs. He lived a happy, low-key kind of life with his wife and eight-year-old son. He ran his own company and traveled cross-country regularly to sell Native American art and jewelry from the back of a cargo truck. To those that knew him, Jay was courteous, compassionate, and hardworking. Unfortunately, he also had quite the soft spot for the company of beautiful women, and it would ultimately be his undoing. Born on September 8, 1959 in Phoenix, Arizona, J. Michael Orban was the second son of Jake and Joanne Orban. Before settling into a 30-year career in the Postal Service, Jay's father dabbled in a number of different occupations, including stints in the stockyard and as a dishwasher at local restaurants. His mother, Joanne, went to work for Honeywell, a maker of military and aerospace components, as a manager of the assembly line. The Orbans were your typical working-class Catholic family. Jay's older brother, Jake Jr., described their childhood as wholesome and family-oriented. 
Growing up, their house was full of love, warmth, and laughter. In the summer, the family's backyard pool and easygoing nature made their place a popular spot for barbecues and visits from neighboring youngsters. Jay was a born salesman, sociable, talkative, and ambitious from an early age. He was determined to make his own way in the world. When he was a teenager, he got his first job working nights and weekends at the garden department of a discount department store. Thanks to his strong work ethic and happy-go-lucky attitude, Jay also started getting hired to do some landscaping and gardening on the side. One of his most prominent clients was a model home developer, and Jay ended up adding the finishing touches to many of their new developments. Within a short amount of time, Jake Jr. realized that his teenage brother's two-day work week as a landscaper was bringing in more money than Jake's own 40-hour week. Jay was so good at it, in fact, that he started doing landscaping full-time immediately after graduating high school in 1977, and founded his own landscaping company shortly afterward. Jay invited his brother to join him as a partner in his new business venture, Landscape Matters, an offer that Jake happily accepted. Together, the two brothers worked diligently to bring their vision for the company to life. Jay managed the crews while Jake handled the clerical work and their dedication paid off. Before long, their small startup became a licensed company contracted to maintain the grounds of Motel 6 locations across the nation. As a testament to Jay's work ethic and business savvy, he was able to buy his first house in 1978. Pretty impressive for a teenager fresh out of high school. Unfortunately, around the middle of the 1980s, their once thriving business began to decline. Eventually, both brothers decided to move on to other things. Jake Jr. tied the knot and started a new life in San Diego, where he worked as a horticulturist for the city of San Diego's Balboa Park and for Mission Bay Parks and Recreation. It would end up being his dream job, and he credited his younger brother's business for opening the door to a career he would pursue for over 20 years. After his brother moved, Jay took the money from his landscaping company and invested it in a comedy club in central Phoenix. The club was called Chuckles and had hosted some of the most popular stand-up acts of the time. Jay had the good fortune to become friends with several of these performers, one of whom was a comedian named Richard Belzer. Later in life, Richard Belzer would become well-known for his portrayal of Sergeant John Munch in the hit shows Homicide, Life on the Streets, and Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Sadly, Chuckles closed its doors after a few years, but that didn't keep Jay down for long. He chose to pursue a career in sales instead, which turned out to be a great move. He founded Spectral Kinetics, a company that focused on selling static electricity orbs to bars and nightclubs. The globes were high-tech for the time, and Jay proudly displayed the demos all over his house. Within a year, though, Chinese factories started cranking out a more manageable retail variant. The static electricity orbs quickly went from innovative to trendy to obsolete, and the sudden lack of interest in his product nearly drove Jay into the red. Around this time, Jay became acquainted with Jim Rogers, a prosperous businessman who made a killing selling Native American-themed jewelry and art at flea markets and craft shows. Impressed by Jay's skill and work ethic, Jim started showing him the ropes of the business. Even though they eventually went their separate ways and became competitors, they would remain good friends all throughout their lives. 
Eventually, Jay decided to fly solo with a brand new business concept, Jayhawk Trader. His latest company sold a wide range of jewelry and Native American art, from beautiful kachina dolls to artisanal pottery and rugs. People couldn't get enough of his merchandise, especially in the Southwest. Soon, Jay was making a name for himself at outdoor swap meets where he would rent a 20-foot tent to showcase his wares. After nearly declaring bankruptcy, Jay was able to turn things around with his new company and was making a six-figure salary within a couple of years. As his business flourished, he acquired a warehouse in Phoenix, purchased a large white cargo truck, and partnered with manufacturers and retailers to create a wholesale market. As his company grew, it became necessary for Jay to spend more time away from home. He would travel across the country for weeks at a time, returning to Phoenix only when he needed to restock the truck. It was tough being away from home, but Jay loved his job and the freedom that came with it. On top of being a self-made man, he was known for his integrity and honesty. The market was overflowing with ruthless businessmen, all vying to outcompete each other and make the deal. But Jay was different. By being trustworthy and upfront in his business dealings, he was able to build a solid base of loyal customers. Although Jay was a shrewd businessman, his sensitivity and caring nature meant that he was always looking out for others. And since his business acumen allowed him to make money in abundance, he wasn't shy about sharing his wealth. For example, when one of his customers fell on hard times and couldn't pay back the substantial sum of money he owed, Jay simply forgave the debt and told him not to worry about it. Jay was always mindful of where he came from, even at the height of his success. He favored a low-key, thrifty look consisting of sneakers, jeans, and a massive belt buckle, all topped off with his trademark cowboy hat. One of the running jokes amongst his friends was that if he needed to go somewhere fancy, he'd just polish his cowboy boots. Everyone who knew Jay could attest to his hardworking nature, but he also knew how to let loose and have some fun. With his sharp wit and contagious energy, Jay had a large circle of close friends, and he often seemed like the happiest person in any room. Jay had the confidence, charisma, and persuasive abilities to be a natural salesman, and he used that same charm to woo women. Although he wasn't your typical ladies' man, he was rarely seen without a beautiful woman on his arm. He was handsome, sure, and that certainly played a part, but his magnetic personality was the real draw. Jay was a fixture of Arizona's glittering strip club scene in the 80s and 90s. He visited clubs like Bourbon Street Circus, Babe's Cabaret, and Skin Cabaret several times a week, often with friends, but sometimes alone. He was well-known and liked by everyone from the dancers to the managers, and he met most of his closest friends there, and most of his girlfriends. His appreciation for women was boundless, and he sought their company with enthusiasm. He was known as a big spender at the topless clubs and generously draped his favorite dancers with lavish gifts and money. He would see a number of them outside the club setting. Many of the dancers he met would eventually become his girlfriends, but these relationships were often short-lived and turbulent. In Jay's mind, it was all in good fun. His youth, wealth, and appreciation for attractive women made him eager to splurge on them, but his fixation may have clouded his judgment a tad, since he often ended up with dancers who were struggling financially or trapped in a toxic relationship. 
Jay, however, seemed unfazed by any of the drama. Because he traveled frequently for work, it was difficult for him to maintain long-term relationships. For a good many years, he seemed perfectly content with his bachelor life. Until he met a stunning dancer named Marjorie Marquis, that is. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Born on October 29, 1961, in Miami, Florida, Marjorie Ann Crow was the second child of William and Janelle Crow. Her parents parted ways when she was only three years old. Janelle eventually found love again and remarried Peter Garrett, an air conditioning repairman who Marjorie always viewed as her own father. Marjorie's family was a picture of upper-middle-class normalcy. Her mother, a kindergarten teacher, worked a second job to pay for Marjorie's piano and ballet classes, and she imparted proper etiquette and manners to her daughter from a young age. At six years old, Marjorie discovered her passion for dancing. She received classical training in ballet, jazz, and tap, and dreamed of a future as a professional dancer and choreographer. During her time at Lake Brantley High School, one of the most sought-after schools in Orlando, Marjorie made the most of her training as a dancer by becoming a majorette. With baton and flags in hand, Marjorie proudly marched along with the school band at parades and football games and eventually became known amongst her classmates as Marching Marjorie. Despite her reputation as a flirt, she rarely dated in high school, and when she did date, she preferred older men over boys her age. When she was 15 years old, Marjorie landed her first job as a hostess at a steakhouse. On top of her studies and part-time job, she also danced on weekends at a dinner theater called Once Upon a Stage. While working at the restaurant, Marjorie caught the eye of a successful man named Mitchell Marquis. Mitchell was 10 years older than her, but he was exactly her type. The pair were quickly drawn to each other, and before long, their relationship blossomed into something more. As bright as her future seemed, her life wasn't without its heartaches. Marjorie's life changed dramatically when she was 17. During a regular gynecological checkup, her obstetrician told her that she had endometriosis, which rendered her infertile and unable to have children. When Marjorie heard the news, she was completely devastated. Having kids had always been part of her plan, and the pain of knowing that it would never happen was almost too much to bear. She struggled with the reality that she would never have the chance to become a mother, and it ultimately altered her entire outlook on life. Once Marjorie finished high school in 1980, she and Mitchell made the move to Orlando. She got a job at a venue called Church Street Station, where she danced and served drinks. Marjorie's natural talent and formal dance training made her stand out as a performer. Before long, the managers at the club noticed her skills and asked her to choreograph routines. After less than a year, Marjorie was promoted to manager at the age of 19. She would go on to hold multiple positions at the club over the next five years. Before the age of 34, Marjorie would marry seven times. Her romantic partnerships never lasted long and were frequently rocky. 
She spent her whole adult life looking for someone to fill the void left by not being able to have children and was desperate for a stable, loving family of her own. But she had high hopes and she demanded an unattainable level of perfection from her potential partners. She often wound up unsatisfied and seemed to be forever searching for something that always stayed just out of reach. Because of that, Marjorie had an insatiable yearning for the blissful early stages of a romantic relationship. Once that initial spark started to dim, however, she simply moved along to her next fling. She was a woman who needed constant male companionship, and many of her entanglements overlapped. She rarely left one man's bed without having another ready and waiting. Many of her acquaintances would later characterize her as self-centered and indifferent to the needs of those around her. She often appeared warm and caring, but her emotions came off as surface-level and insincere. Marjorie justified her demeanor by stating that she was simply unwilling to accept anything less than she felt she deserved. Marjorie's first marriage was to Mitchell Marquis. They married on March 28, 1981, when Marjorie was 19. However, as she took on more responsibilities as manager of the club, Marjorie spent more and more time apart from her husband, causing tension in the newlyweds' marriage. It fell apart within a year and a half. Their divorce was finalized on October 11, 1982. According to Marjorie, their breakup was mostly amicable. Even though Marjorie remarried more than once, she often went back to using the last name Marquis. She said she preferred it because it sounded prettier and more suited for a dancer. At roughly the same time that Marjorie's marriage to Mitchell was coming to an end, she started seeing a strapping young man named Larry Tweed. At just 22 years old, Larry had already accumulated a sizable bank account while working for his family's successful furniture business. In 1983, eight months after her divorce from Mitchell was finalized, Marjorie and Larry would tie the knot. About two years later, she left and filed for divorce. Marjorie had barely let the ink dry on her latest divorce papers before she was off on a new romance. She met part-time singer Luke Forrest at the club just as he was about to take the stage. Within a matter of weeks, she had traded Larry's place for Luke's. At first glance, Marjorie and Luke made an attractive couple, but beneath the surface, their romance was far from the fairy tale she craved. According to Marjorie, Luke was a master of control who dictated their finances and demanded she give him her paycheck each week so he could pay the bills, which she did without much protest. However, Marjorie would be in for a rude awakening about a year into their relationship, when a co-worker at the club informed her that her car was being towed in the middle of her shift. She ran out to stop the driver, who explained that her car was being repossessed due to non-payment. When she confronted Luke, she was horrified to discover that she had been gambling away their hard-earned money instead of paying the bills. Understandably livid, Marjorie stormed out and left him, but their breakup didn't last for long. He apologized to her and asked for forgiveness, and the two patched things up soon afterward. At first, Marjorie thought that Luke had really changed for the better, but the illusion would be painfully short-lived. In 1985, Luke began to talk of plans to relocate back to his hometown of Cincinnati. Luke's parents wanted to sell their apartment complex so they could move to Florida and they had a great opportunity for him. If he moved to Ohio to renovate the building, they would reward him with a share in the profits and a free apartment. Thinking it would be a good way to make some quick cash, Marjorie quit her job. 
Then the couple sold nearly all of their possessions, packed the rest in Luke's car, and hit the road. Despite Luke's promises of a better life in Ohio, the trip was full of warning signs. He made frequent stops at payphones along the way, and after each call, he seemed to get more and more agitated. Eventually, after one of these calls, he broke the news. The apartment they were counting on wouldn't be available for at least a few more weeks. He told her not to worry, though. He had a plan. It wasn't a good plan, but with no job and no place to go, Marjorie didn't have a whole lot of options. Luke claimed he had some friends that worked at a salon in Las Vegas and suggested they go there. He'd get a job with them, make a little money to fund their journey to Ohio, and they'd simply make the move once their place in Cincinnati was ready. Although she had reservations about the idea, it certainly seemed weird that his super-rich parents were cool knowing their son and his girlfriend were more or less homeless, she ultimately agreed. When Luke and Marjorie arrived in Las Vegas in the fall of 1985, they had only planned to stay for a month. They rented a small apartment and Marjorie snagged a job as a showgirl at the Stardust Hotel and Casino. It was a glitzy gig, but not the most lucrative, and since Luke still hadn't found a job for himself, money was incredibly tight. But what about the friends that supposedly offered him a job at their salon? Since that was the whole point of coming to Las Vegas in the first place, it seemed strange that they were suddenly nowhere to be found. After a couple of weeks of giving Marjorie excuse after excuse, he told her that he had finally found them, but apparently his cosmetology license prevented him from working outside of Florida, the state he'd been registered in, which kind of feels like something you should probably look into before traveling more than 2,000 miles across the country. As Luke continued his supposed job search, he started pressuring her to strip for more income, all the while claiming that he just couldn't get a call back from any of the places he'd applied to. Fall faded into winter, and as more and more time passed, Marjorie was getting fed up with his suggestions that she take up pole dancing when he was the one that was unemployed. After three months of repeating the same pattern and expecting a different result, she began to realize that moving to Cincinnati probably wasn't going to happen, and that Luke may or may not have known that all along. Yet, despite their financial struggles, she believed that things weren't too dire. After all, they still had their savings to fall back on. Except, they didn't. Unbeknownst to her, Luke had already gambled away every penny of their $8,000 safety net. As soon as Marjorie found out, she loaded everything she had into their car and headed back to Florida without him. Unfortunately, this trip wasn't exactly smooth sailing either. She made it as far as Phoenix before her car broke down. When she took it to the repair shop, the mechanic had some bad news. The part needed to fix her car would cost close to a grand to order and it would take at least 10 days to arrive. Marjorie was at a loss. None of her loved ones had supported her relationship with Luke in the first place, and her pride was wounded by her naivety. With her bank account empty and no one to turn to for a loan, she had no idea how she was going to scrape that kind of money together. Desperate to make some money, Marjorie set out to find a temporary job to cover the costs of getting her car fixed and returning to Florida. It was during this search that her gaze fell onto a rather unorthodox solution a strip club by the name of Bourbon Street Circus. In no time at all, Marjorie was making more money than she'd ever before in her life. As a club manager, she made $850 a week at most, but as a topless dancer, she could easily make five dollars to $600 in a single night. 
Even though Marjorie stepped onto the stage with no experience as an exotic dancer, she mesmerized the crowd with her natural allure. She had the looks, of course, but it was her seductive charm and charisma that kept the men coming back. She was also an exceptionally perceptive woman. She had a remarkable knack for picking up on what people around her wanted and then shaping her behavior to match. As a result, many of her customers were happy to pay her just to hang out and chat for a while. Soon, Marjorie got to know many of the club's frequent visitors. The regulars were usually drawn to women far out of their league and most seemed pretty aware of it, but they were also aware of the fact that money talks. For the women they preferred, a fistful of cash went much further than a bouquet of flowers. In 1985, one such regular happened to be a 26-year-old named Jay Orban. One night, as he was sipping on a beer by himself at the bar, Marjorie caught his eye. She had only been at Bourbon Street Circus for a couple of days, but as he watched her slink on stage, he found himself smitten at once. That night, he made his way over to her, placed a crisp $100 bill on the table, and asked if he could buy her a drink. Despite his instant attraction toward her, she didn't quite share the same sentiment. Marjorie said he reminded her of a used car salesman with his diamond pinky rings, cowboy boots, and large belt buckle. Looks aside, he was funny and sweet and had undeniable appeal, although what Marjorie found most appealing of all was how freely he spent his money on her. Not long after they met, he was visiting his favorite dancer up to six times a week. He paid for her attention each time and they would share a drink in between dances. She often confided in him about her relationship woes. In turn, he often asked to take her out on dates, an offer she turned down pretty consistently at first. But after about two months of seeing him five or six times a week, he started to grow on her, and eventually, she agreed. Like most of her relationships, it didn't last long. Jay adored her, but at 24, Marjorie still felt like there was a better life out there somewhere, one filled with all the riches and glamour she'd ever dreamed of. She broke things off and moved back to Florida, where she hooked up with a millionaire business mogul that many referred to as the quote-unquote strip club king due to his talent for taking seedy topless bars and transforming them into swanky gentlemen's clubs. When that went sideways, she decided to return to Vegas. It was 1993, and by some strange stroke of coincidence, Jay happened to be in town on business. It had been ten years since he had last seen Marjorie, but time hadn't extinguished the embers that still burned for her in his heart. He saw her picture on a billboard as he was passing through and decided to give her a call. They decided to get a drink together to catch up, and they spent the entire night talking and reminiscing about the old days. Jay had to leave for Phoenix the very next morning, but the flames of their relationship had been fully rekindled. The two of them were very different people, but they had one thing in common. They both desperately wanted to raise a family. Now that he had met the love of his life, Jay was ready to settle down and put his bachelor life behind him. There was just one problem. Marjorie was unable to have children. But Jay had a solution. Fertility treatments. And considering his income, he could certainly afford to pay for them. He told Marjorie that if she agreed to marry him and move to Phoenix, he would gladly foot the bill. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His mother wasn't crazy about the idea. Sure, Marjorie was pretty, but good looks don't always equal a good wife, and she gave off a strong gold digger vibe. On top of that, she also had a bit of an ego and often accused Joanne Orban of being jealous of the way her son doted on his future bride. Despite his mother's reservations, the couple eloped at the Little White Wedding Chapel on Las Vegas Boulevard. At first, the marriage seemed like a happy one, if a little mismatched. She stepped into the role of the perfect housewife and appeared to genuinely enjoy it. Even though the fertility treatments were very hard on her body and often made her sick, she kept enduring them in hopes that she might finally get the one thing no man had ever been able to give her, a child. Eventually, the treatments worked. After spending her entire adult life aching for the child she thought she'd never have, they finally welcomed a baby boy into the world. The next few years were pure bliss as they watched their son grow and thrive. Jay was an excellent father and he continued to work hard to provide for his family. Everything was picture perfect. And then it wasn't. On August 26, 2004, Jay watched his 8-year-old son blow out the candles on his birthday cake. Soon after that, he left on a business trip to Florida not knowing that their usual goodbye would be the last time he would ever talk to his beloved son. As he drove from destination to destination, Hurricane Francis began to rip its way through the state. Reluctant to take his chances against the elements, he ultimately decided to cut his trip short and head back home. On September 8th, Jay's mother called to wish him a happy birthday. After a brief conversation, he told her that he had just made it to Phoenix and would call her back once he got settled in at home, but he was never heard from again. A week went by, but Jay never called. As the days dragged on, Joanne became more and more frantic. Her intuition told her that something wasn't right, but Marjorie waved off her concerns, claiming that Jay had come home and simply left for another trip immediately afterwards. But as another week came and went, Jay's loved ones grew desperate. They begged Marjorie to call the police. After days of pleading, she finally relented and reported her husband's disappearance. Detective Jan Butcher found Marjorie's demeanor somewhat strange given the circumstances. Hey Marjorie, it's Detective Butcher. It's about 10 to 6 Tuesday evening. I was just calling to see if uh, maybe you were available. Need to speak with you regarding uh, Jay and the disappearance. Hello, this is Marjorie Orban. I saw that you had just called. Yeah, thanks for calling back, Marjorie. Hey, I was wondering, uh, do you have some time we can sit down and talk about the investigation and where to go with it? Sure. I mean, I thought that's what we're doing tomorrow. Well, what time are you available? Are you available any earlier than 10? I have a child I have to take to school at 9. Okay. I mean... do you, do you want to talk, you mean on the phone or in person or what? In person, I, I just kind of get the feeling that you're really not available and willing to, to help us out, try to locate you where. You get that feeling, huh? Um, no, mostly, um, hmm, that's, uh, 
Hmm, surprised for you to say that. I had uh, called you earlier this afternoon. Right, I just saw that, and I just got, got home. Oh, okay. Why, you know what? I'm already feeling like I am having to defend myself here. Okay, well, I don't mean to make you feel on oh. the defensive or anything like that. I'm very concerned about Jay. I speak more matter-of-factly. Mm -hmm. That does not mean that I do not care. But just because I'm not running around crying and in, in, in hysteria mm -hmm. does not mean that I'm not concerned in not doing anything. Right, right. I'm not saying that. I have been rooting through paperwork and trying to decrypt crap on the computer. Well, what do you think has happened to him? I mean, where do you explain Jay to be for the last what, week and a half or so? Since I don't know where he has been for the last week and a half or so, I can't explain it. My problem is I, I am not going to be mold, mowed all over. I, I'm and, not and, trying and to, I know to that mow you. Have a job. I'm trying not to mow you over. I know you have I'm a job, but now you're, you're having a problem because I couldn't be somewhere at the drop of a hat on in one particular instance. Okay. One let, particular okay. instance. Let me explain. Now I'm a bad guy. No, I'm not saying you're a bad guy. While the rest of her husband's family seemed beside themselves with worry, Marjorie was callous and didn't appear all that interested in helping the police locate him. When the detective asked for the license plate number on Jay's car, Marjorie said she would get back to her, but she never did. Then, on December 28th, Detective Butcher called multiple times and ended up leaving at least three messages before she finally received a call back. In a conversation that was both suspicious and enlightening all at the same time, Marjorie dropped a bombshell. She was actually Jay's ex-wife. According to her, they divorced for tax reasons but still lived together as a married couple. You explained to me that you and Jay were simply a mutual friendship, respect for one another. And I have, and as over the years, I have a great deal of love and respect for the man. So, are you dating somebody then? I, we, Jay and I are not married. You're not married now? No. Okay. We have been divorced for a number of years, okay. and we remain together, living together, um, for reasons that were between us, and okay. if you think that that's something sneaky and need to need to think you need no. to need to know about something from five, six years ago, uh, perhaps we'll get into that if you feel at some point you need to know. Okay. So um, you were divorced five or six years ago, yes. the two of you? Okay. And, we, we, and between us have an agreement to continue living together as husband and wife. I have his will and I have his power of attorney. And how, uh, how come you didn't tell me that when... How do I know what I need to tell you? I've never been in a circumstance like this. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't know. Do I need to tell you the color of my toenail polish? I don't, I don't care what color your toenail polish is. But you know what I'm saying? How much of my personal life should I divulge? How much well, shouldn't I? I, I would I don't like for you to be completely honest. Completely honest about everything in the entire world? As it relates I, to the investigation, okay. the fact that does you Does this relate to the are, investigation? Yes, ma'am, it does. Okay, I didn't think it did. But even if that were the case, you'd expect a person in her situation to help the authorities with their investigation in any way possible. Instead, she seemed more concerned with helping herself to Jay's money. She went on multiple shopping sprees and spent a combined total of $45,000. Retail therapy is one thing, but the police began to believe that this was something entirely different. The whole situation screamed of foul play, and over the next few weeks, that scream would only get louder and louder. See, unbeknownst to Jay, Marjorie had been having an affair with a man she met at the gym. His name was Larry Weisberg, 
Every time her husband left for a business trip, she would sneak him into the house and let him stay until Jay was due to return. Larry first became known to Detective Butcher during a phone call in which she asked Marjorie if she would take a polygraph test. In the recording of the conversation, Marjorie can be heard talking to someone in the room with her, and a man's voice starts yelling obscenities in the background. During the, the course of missing persons investigations, we run polygraphs on all the parties involved. I understand okay. that. We start with, you know, the person closest to that missing person, and that would be you. Okay. Jay, as Jay's wife. Can we schedule for a polygraph you know what? tomorrow? I think I'm going to call an attorney, because I don't like the tone of a lot of this. Ma'am, I'm not getting a no, tone with I'm you. No, I'm going to call, I'm gonna call an attorney. Uh, he wants me to take a polygraph tomorrow. You tell him to go f*** yourself. Uh, Who's that? None of your f***ing business. It's okay. a friend of mine. Okay. Is this conversation being recorded? Yes, it is. It is. Okay. I would like a copy of that. Okay. I was under the understanding you'd like to have a conversation and yes. try and get some information rather than throw around accusations that are being Ma'am, I'm not making any accusations. Oh, you I... did make accusations, I think, if you play this tape back. Okay. You, you said it that just, I, I to be less with, than cooperative. With all the, the investigations that I've done with all the missing persons cases I've been involved in, it's, it's kind of unusual that you're not as cooperative as most in of the other. In what way am I not being cooperative? You asked to the house. I'm, I'm absolutely happy to do so. It would be more productive if I have enough time to straighten some of the crap out so that you can make heads or tails of it. The paperwork doesn't have to be straightened. Okay. What, what is it that you can... want to see here at the house? That's what we can go through when we get there. You don't have to straighten out okay. the paperwork. You don't have to well, go through the paperwork. Have... That's what we can do. That man, as it turns out, was Larry. The detectives secured a search warrant not long after, then sent out a SWAT team to execute it. After breaking down the front door, a man charged at them. But unfortunately for Larry, he was bringing his fists to a taser fight, and the odds weren't in his favor. When he refused to back down, a well-aimed shot from the taser certainly did the trick. Although no arrests were made throughout the course of their search, there was a treasure trove of clues scattered around. Clues that seem to suggest that Jay never left for his supposed second trip. For one thing, a number of credit cards were found. They were all in Jay Orban's name, and he never traveled without them. Even if he had somehow forgotten those cards, there was no way he would have also forgotten his business checkbook, which he kept in his briefcase. Yet that was also in the house. After six weeks, Jay's remains were discovered in a makeshift casket along with some cash and a single bullet casing. Marjorie went from being the main suspect in his sudden disappearance to being the main suspect in his brutal murder and dismemberment. It was at this point that Detective Barnes took over the case and he quickly began to work out a motive. Dumping a body like that was risky business, but if she had killed him for his money, it would have been a necessary part of the plan. In order to get control of his estate, she would need a death certificate, and in order to get a death certificate, the remains would need to be found. High risk brings high reward, after all. The problem, though, was that she couldn't control herself. Instead of laying low and trying to avoid any unwanted attention, she continued to blow her husband's money. Or, rather, she tried to anyway. Three weeks after the tragic discovery of Jay's body, Marjorie was busted for forging his signature at a Circuit City electronics store. When questioned, she claimed that she was merely replacing some business computers that the police had confiscated. 
we get a call out there that, that there's a credit card uh, in your husband's name and your husband is missing, tell me what the story is. Because um, apparently you've been using the credit cards with no problem, right? I always have. My husband is missing and he um, is not here generating income. Mm-hmm. We both ran, he ran the business and I helped him. So for seven years you have this account. Um, you it know, has his name on it. His name on it. And it your says name? J, it says J period M period Orban. Okay. And the debit card. And I just used the debit card. and For seven years? And, mm-hmm. Okay. Am I getting myself in big trouble saying that I... I don't. I don't see it. Um, if you got it, two people's names, I have no, one with my daughter's name on it. Name. No, no, it, it says J. Period M. So that means no, no. J. Michael Orban. Oh, oh, okay. It was his account. I thought it was like J. Slash no, M. No, no, it was his account that he had me using. And he knew about, it, of course. Yes. And he was put, putting the money in. Yes, every week. Okay. You've used this in the past, this credit card, because I saw the uh, Circuit City said you bought stuff with no problem. I don't know why they are saying they've closed Jay's accounts. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's in Jay's name. Because mm-hmm. nothing can be in my name. Because if anything's in my name, the IRS problem. It's going to attach it. So we just, I put myself at risk, mm-hmm. you know, of not being able to accumulate, um, you know, uh, community property uh, accumulated status or rights or whatever. And mm-hmm. I didn't care because I knew Jay would never, you know, do anything against me or anything. But I guess it says it showed up that he's deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Detective Barnes has been working on this missing persons thing, and I'm really upset with him because um, he brought us in to tell us um, that he thinks that they found my husband. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I still, he's my husband and my mom. And they told his parents that they're pretty sure it's him. Mm-hmm. His parents are in their 70s and just completely distraught and completely, I mean, they're, they're older physically than, than their age. They're, they're not well, and they've been it's through hell and they're distraught, and he told them that he's 100% sure that it's my husband before the DNA, mm-hmm. before the test. And I think that's just very irresponsible, because his mother's just going to die. What do you think? I don't know. You don't know? Detective Barnes didn't buy it, and the interview quickly switched gears from a fraud investigation to the formal interrogation of a homicide suspect. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The part about J. Toot. I mean, do you know anywhere we can start? Do you have any idea where we can start finding him and look for him? How can we know? How can... Yeah. What, what, I want him back here. What makes you so more than anyone in this world? I'm just enough. afraid of something I say being misconstrued or taken out of context or read in a way that it might not be fact. I mean, I have been told, well, you, you bought this, so you must, you bought this, so you must think that the, you must have, so that meant that you thought that Jay wasn't coming back to me? No, that's not what it meant. I bought it, that's what it meant. It meant that I bought it, that's all. When was the last time you saw Jay? See, this is the thing that I really am terrified of sitting here and answering questions. I want to answer any question that you want answered. I will, will tell you the truth. I will t- as best as I know, I will tell you anything you want to know. But I have a little boy out there that may have lost his father. 
and I'm terrified of him losing his mother. And I don't want to say anything that may be taken out of context. Or, okay. Or, and, and I would, I would, is, I, may we resume this conversation during the day when my son is at school with the attorney present just to help me, just so, just not to stop it. I will talk to you, but just to help make sure that I don't make an error. And, and okay, I don't mean, this. and I don't mean cover my behind and hide a lie. I don't mean protect okay. anyone else. I don't mean that at all. I just mean I have to, given what I have at stake, what my life, you know, if I'm blamed for this, I have a little boy out there that needs me. He needs his father too. At one point, the detective slid over a picture of what was left of her son's father and watched her reaction carefully. She continued to deny having any role in Jay's horrific fate and was eventually released later that night, but the wheels of justice seemed to continue to roll. It wouldn't be long before even more evidence surfaced. While combing through the items confiscated from the Orban residence, the investigators found receipts for various cleaning supplies, all purchased the day after Jay disappeared. She also acid-washed the garage floor and applied an epoxy coating, which made it impossible to detect any traces of blood. As suspicious as these new clues were, there was something even more damning around the corner. Two days after Jay vanished, security footage from a Lowe's hardware store showed her purchasing two containers identical to the ones his torso was eventually found in. When confronted with the tape, Marjorie pinned all of the blame on her lover. It wouldn't be the first time a jealous boyfriend decided to take out the competition, and the search of Larry Weisberg's home and vehicle turned up an interesting find. Larry had a remote to the Orban's garage, which meant he could let himself in and out whenever he wanted. But did that make him the killer? It's entirely possible that he could have hidden himself somewhere in the garage, waited for Jay to arrive, and then shot him. Unfortunately, law enforcement couldn't really prove it one way or the other. What they could prove was that Marjorie was definitely involved. All of the evidence they had collected pointed to her as Jay's murderer. Well, all of the evidence they tested anyway. Detective Barnes admitted that some hairs had been found on the container. Hairs that were never tested by the Phoenix Crime Lab, despite his attempts to have them analyzed. Two of the hairs that were tested didn't match either suspect, but there were several others that were never tested at all. Depending on who the hair belonged to, it could have either cleared Larry Weisberg or put him in jail. Six weeks after Robert Ames opened the rancid desert tomb, Marjorie was finally arrested. During the trial, Larry was given the chance to testify against his ex-girlfriend in exchange for immunity. The defense attorney argued that the detectives ignored him as a possible suspect in favor of targeting Marjorie while the prosecutor painted Larry as just another one of Marjorie Orban's temporary flings. Like the men who came before him, her attraction was rooted in how useful he was to her. In other words, if he did have something to do with Jay's death, it was all her idea. The state's theory went like this. Marjorie had become disgusted with her loving husband. He had given her the baby she so desperately wanted, but ultimately he had outlived his usefulness. She no longer wanted him, what she did want was his money, and she was the kind of woman accustomed to getting her way. So once she decided that she wanted him dead, it was only a matter of time. She waited for him to get home, got his gun out of his briefcase, and shot him in the garage. 
After she killed him, she hacked his body into pieces. The autopsy showed that the cuts through his tibia and vertebrae were consistent with a jigsaw, and the police just so happened to find a package of similar blades in the Orban home. Unfortunately, the saw and gun were never found, and neither was the rest of Jay's body for that matter. To support their argument, the prosecution put Marjorie's former cellmate, Sophia Johnson, on the stand. According to Sophia, Marjorie was all too eager to talk about what she had done. She testified that the defendant often referred to her murdered husband as fat and disgusting, and even recounted the events of the murder. In fact, she spoke at length about how she shot him in cold blood, froze the body, thawed it, and then removed his head and limbs. Marjorie vehemently denied the allegation. Her legal team attacked the ex-cellmate's credibility, labeling her as an opportunistic snitch with something to gain. But the prosecutors assured the jury that the only thing Sophia Johnson was gaining during this trial was a long, tedious day in the courtroom. It's rarely a fun place unless you're about to win money on Judge Judy. As for getting any sentencing leniency, they put that notion to rest as well. Then they called their next witness, Larry Weisberg himself. He hadn't seen Marjorie in five years, and now he was about to give the court his side of the story, in exchange for partial immunity, of course. He told the court that she was a self-assured temptress who lured him into a twisted love triangle, but once Jay's body was found, her confidence faltered. She was terrified, according to Larry's testimony. She pleaded with him to run away with her. He also denied having any knowledge or involvement of what happened to Jay. The defense took issue with that statement in particular. They reminded the jury that this was the guy with a temper. He was violent and impulsive enough to try to take on a SWAT team, angry enough to curse up a storm while his girlfriend was on the phone with a detective, and he would be the one strong enough to move a 280-pound corpse around. In other words, he could have killed Jay just as easily. And Marjorie herself? Her lawyers told her not to testify, so she took their advice. Years later, she would claim that she had been deceived by her defense team and was under the impression that there was enough reasonable doubt to make taking the stand unnecessary. There were still a lot of key elements that the prosecutors hadn't found after all. No murder weapon, no eyewitnesses, no concrete evidence that she was actually present during any stage of the murder and disposal of the remains. She expressed regret at not being able to tell her side of the story in court, but the truth is, regardless of her story, all of the available evidence pointed to her, and that was a strong enough case in itself. Only one person stood in her favor, the millionaire strip club owner that she had dated after her first breakup with Jay. He testified that he'd actually offered to take care of Marjorie and her son if they got back together. Therefore, if she was really out for a payday, she could have easily just moved on and started a relationship with him instead. If it was shopping sprees she wanted, there was no need to kill her husband, he said. All she really had to do was leave him. In the end, it wasn't enough to overcome the case against her. After an eight-month trial, the jury took seven hours to decide her fate. Guilty. The death penalty was considered but ultimately rejected in favor of a life sentence without parole. After her arrest, Jay's older brother took custody of his eight-year-old nephew. The Orbans family and friends say they still celebrate Jay's birthday every year. 
Marjorie Orban was once a talented showgirl, living her dream as a dancer. But her love of money was far stronger than her loyalty to any one man. It was, in fact, the kind of love affair that some people killed for. She had taken everything from Jay, from his credit cards to his life, and left him desecrated out in the middle of a desolate wasteland. She was gorgeous, but her beauty wouldn't be able to conceal the truth for long, because deep down, Marjorie Orban was a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter, or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.